pray with me as we go to the Word this morning. Father, we come again as we open your Word to ask that through your Holy Spirit you'd open our minds. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Last week, uh, the sermon on a section of Matthew chapter uh, 4, dealing with the temptation of Christ, uh, was presented to you by Levi Gill, which, again, thank you very much. If you haven't had it, if you missed that sermon or you want to listen to it again, you know, you can go to our webpage, and at the bottom of the, of the home page, I guess you call it, or the main page, there's a Facebook emblem, and then there's an emblem below that that you can tap on or, 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 or hit with your uh, mouse pointer. And uh, uh, go. it takes you to the list of sermons that have been given, and you can listen to that sermon. And I, if you haven't listened to it, if you didn't hear it, I really encourage you to listen to it. Um, it established where I want to go this morning, and that is, is that Christ was tempted and he, it was done so without sin. In other words, Jesus... In fact, there was a, a scripture used out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that says that you know Christ was tempted as in, in every way or in every way that we have been tempted, but without sin. And that has drawn me to what I want to share with you this morning. In fact, uh, it wouldn't have been part of my series except for some of the things that, that Levi said last week in his message that prompted this to be my focus this week. And uh, so going to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, looking at verse 15, but actually in the context, verses 14, 15, and 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Last week, uh, Levi, you mentioned... uh, looking at the temptations of Christ, the three temptations that are recorded, that, you know, you saw it with, I, I can't remember the exact words you used, with a big, that had a stronger bite or with teeth, something to that effect. Yeah, in other words, there must be something here greater than just the fact that he was tempted. And the reality is, is that Jesus in those temptations was tempted in the sense of, uh, in every, uh, he was tempted as the Messiah. And, and Levi made that really, really clear. For, you know, especially the, the, the two last temptations. The one where Jesus is uh, taken to the pinnacle of the, of the temple and said, leap. Satan says, leap. And the angel will catch you. He was quoting scripture, uh, songs. And, 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 and Jesus, of course, said, you know, he, he, you know man doesn't live by, by the... the you know, I'm not going to go into the whole thing. Just the fact that that was, there was a whole group of, of Hebrew scholars and scribes that believed that if that that was a messianic prophecy, that the Messiah would show up by leaping from the temple and and be ushered by angels into uh, his prominent place as the, the 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 son of David, king of Israel, and kick out the Romans. And really, what was happening there, as, as Levi pointed out, was the temptation was Jesus bypass the plan, and just take it this way. Think about it, Jesus. All of these people will immediately say, oh, those guys were right, and he's the Messiah, and you'll have it. But it wouldn't accomplish the purpose that Jesus came for. The other one where Jesus, where Satan offers all the, the, the nations of the world to Jesus, he says, if you just bow down to me, By the way, that's a temptation. Both of those temptations aren't anything that Jesus offered to me. I'm not the Messiah. There's no temptation in that sense. But for Jesus, there was a temptation in the sense that, well, if he took all of the the nations now, 
God has promised that he will have them all as for his own. But for the moment, the prince of the air, the prince of this world, he has them. By the way, it's important to note, Satan had the authority and the power to offer. That made it a real temptation. But Jesus rested in God. And the reason why I wanted to point those out was just the reality. He was tempted as the, as the, the Savior very clearly there. Some would say that in, in the idea to, to, to take the stones and turn them to bread was where he was being tempted in the flesh. But, you know, I, 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 I think in terms of I can't imagine him tempting me that way. Here, take a rock, Bob, and, and, and turn it into to, to bread, you know, and, and eat. That's still a messianic picture of a temptation. And so the idea was, well, I thought he was tempted in every way as, as we are. And so that's what I kind of want to look at this morning, is to get into this idea of what he was tempted and, 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 and what happened and, and all that the Scripture implies. It starts off right with the, with the key phrase that he is our great high priest. All through Hebrews, you get the picture of, especially in the, in the, in the beginning chapters, but this picture of the reality that Jesus is better or greater than anything that has preceded him. He was greater than the angels. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than the Levitical priesthood. In fact, it emphasizes in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus came to us under the priesthood of Melchizedek. I don't know how many of you have, have, have had a chance to ever really study about it, but it is one of the most amazing studies. You're going to hear a lot of different ideas. But the one thing Melchizedek was, was he was a king and a high priest of what we know now as Jerusalem, the, of Salem at that point, and that Abraham, when he was blessed by the king, offered him in, as an offering a tenth of what he had and take, had taken in, in, in the battles that he had just won. And, and so you have a picture of Abraham who represents all of the, the people that come to Christ, the children of Abraham, both the Jewish and the Gentile. You know, context, that, and, and we are all the children of Abraham through Christ. Abraham, in his offering to Melchizedek, was pointing out something specific, that Melchizedek was at least a type of Christ, meaning kind of like a photograph at least of Christ and how he was to be worshipped and recognized. There was a priesthood that was ahead of the Levites. In fact, enough so that Hebrews chapter 7 says that Levi, because he was in the loins of Abraham, meaning he hadn't, he's a descendant of Abraham, because Abraham tithed, that means that through Abraham, in a sense, Levites had tithed to Melchizedek. By the way, for me, uh, I'm not going to get into it this morning, though people uh, ask about tithing. And uh, I look at the Old Testament and see tithing occurring long before the law. And I see it as a principle of a relationship with God and worship. And I never tell people what they should be giving, how much they should be giving, but I do want you to know that it is a principle that the Scripture opens up to us. And I tell people if you, you know, that it's something... You, you know, some people say you should be working towards that end. I, I say that you should be moving towards that end as quickly as you can and, and get to it because I think it will enhance your worship and your walk with the Lord. Having nothing to do with, with you know, benefiting the church, but the reality of your relationship with the Lord. But it is how God supports and, and works through his, uh, in the ministry in the world today. So Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. It says in Hebrews that he has uh, no lineage. He has no mother. He has no father. And he lives forever. It, it's certainly a type, a picture of Christ. Well, actually, he said we don't know who his mother and, and father is. They just you know, live forever. We have... The idea that Jesus shows us, or Hebrews actually shows us, that indeed Jesus is this high priest. In chapter 9, uh, the first few verses of chapter 9 of Hebrews, Now when the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the uh, presence, 
It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What Hebrews is explaining to us is the Old Testament system of the Levitical priesthood and the high priest, which initially was Aaron. When he went to worship and take prayers on behalf of the people and their sins, he went in once a year behind the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place where they did their service of worship and and prayers the rest of the time of the year. And it got to the point where after a couple of things that happened, I won't go into the details, but it was such an intimidating thing for the high priest to go in there uh, that they actually tied a rope around him in case something happened that he would die in there and they would be able to pull him out. Uh, It was a very intimidating thing. It was a very fearsome thing, if you will, to come into the presence of God and and to do so in the sense of of the flesh. And and so the idea was, was only the high priest could go representing. Well, now we tell, Hebrews says, Jesus is our high priest under the order of Melchizedek. And it told us very clearly in the Scripture that we read in chapter 10 that the curtain is divided, the flesh of Christ, we come through Him, and we even now have access to the Holy of Holies as often as we need it. I'll actually elaborate on that. We should be dwelling there. I I think of something that uh, A.W. Tozer wrote a number of years ago where he basically said, that, that Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to visit or to peek in the Holy of Holies. He died that we might dwell there. Okay. And we come not with fear and trembling. We'll get into that more this morning. Not like the high priest of, of the Old Testament, but we come through Christ in a once and for all offered sacrifice of Jesus. So Jesus is the high priest. The, the picture of the high priest, the one who intercedes on behalf of the people. Jesus intercedes for us. We cannot come to the <coughs> excuse me. We cannot come to the throne of God in our flesh, but through Christ, because He intercedes for us. He died for us. Verse eleven of chapter nine. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, a once and for all redemption for man. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons uh, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, what was the first covenant for? Well, in the study of Galatians that Grant has been leading us in, we, we, we saw that the, the law was put there, the covenant was put there, the laws of, of, of the commandments were put there to show us the holiness of God, to be a teacher of what it is that God requires of us to approach Him. It says, be ye holy as I am holy. We, we, but, but the law points out, you, you're not holy because you've sinned. How many have sinned? All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All of us have strayed and gone our own way. And so the end result is that we need a, a sacrifice that will be once and for all. The, the yearly sacrifice just kept rolling over the sins 
until the once and for all sacrifice Jesus Christ was made. The close of, of the, the book of Hebrews, you have, uh, starting with the 24th, 24th verse, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. In other words, if Jesus, if, if it was something He could only temporarily do, it would have to be done over and over and over again. But as it is, He, was, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We're talking about the rapture. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. It says here, in a sense, that picture we get is that He passed through the heavens. He's no longer in an earthly ministry in a sanctuary that was tied to earth, but He's in the heavenly place. The holy of holies of heaven, if you will. And he dwells there. And so not only has he is a, our great high priest, but he has passed through the heavens. Uh, Acts chapter 1 tells us that he ascended in the clouds. That's where he ascends into heaven. Ephesians tells us he sits at the right hand of God, waiting for that point in time where everything that is created will be his footstool, except his body. Read it carefully. 20 through the end of the chapter of, of chapter 1 of Ephesians. It says, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, the head of His body, which is the church. And, and, and the, so the reality is, is that the body of Christ, this church, we sit with Christ on the throne. He tells us we're joint heirs. It's an amazing picture. He's passed through the heavens. He's our, our great high priest. 15 says that he was tempted just as we have been tempted, yet without sin. And I put, and more, in my notes here, the temptation to leave, the temptations of the nations, the temptations that would only have been offered the Messiah, which Levi made clear last week. He did what man could not do. I frequently say to you, especially at communion, we'll never know God's wrath for our sins if we rest in the salvation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you grasp that, but we'll never know the taste of hell We'll never know it because Christ tasted it for us. As a result, we'll never know the wrath for our sins. And I put underneath that, we'll never know Christ's suffering for our sins. And, and normally when I talk about suffering, I think of the terms of suffering on the cross. But you know, it's interesting in Luke chapter uh, 4 where he talks about the, uh, the temptations of Christ. He says that Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and the implication may be read that he was being tempted that whole time. And then the devil appears and tempts him as the Messiah. During those 40 days, possibly being tempted more in the context of a man walking through the wilderness of the desert in the flesh. Who knows? You know, there's, there's no specific information about what happened during those 40 days other than the fact that he didn't take nourishment of any kind. And, and that the, when he was tempted, the first thing he was tempted with was to take some nourishment. It would be the number one drive of the, of the flesh. But it says in, he's been tempted in every way. And I was thinking, wait, you know, I, I, I listened to other messages. I read some commentaries. And all of them had ideas about what it says there in the sense of, 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 of Jesus' temptations. And I thought, when did Jesus start being tempted? When he emptied himself. 
according to Philippians chapter 2, when he emptied himself and became a man. At the point of his incarnation was the beginning of his temptation. been tempted all his life. In every way that man is tempted, he had been tempted. We'll never know that suffering either. And I had never thought about this until uh, Ray Pritchard said it in his in a message that he was doing on Hebrews. Never occurred to me in this context. Jesus knows the suffering in the sense of, of, of what it is to be tempted more so than we will ever know because he is the only one who has ever experienced temptation to its 100% level and succeeded. We always give up ahead of that. We always cave in ahead of that. Jesus took it all the way. I thought, whoa, that really caught my thoughts. Not only the cross, but the temptations through his life, he took them 100% all the way and did not sin. So he knows suffering more than we will ever know, even here. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? He simply knows the suffering and the judgment more than we will ever know. We never made it through any temptation 100%. And that made me really think about the reality of, of, of living still in this fallen flesh that we inherited from Adam. And that reality that sometimes, have you ever had that feeling where I'm doing pretty good? I haven't had this temptation nail me for a long, long time. Or this or that. I was asked the other day how long it had been since I had smoked or drank. And you know, I don't, I don't discuss it in detail with people, but it's been years and years. We'll just put it that way. You know? And uh, I remember in, 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 in 1976, you know, the biggest thing I thought of getting rid of was, you know, I, I need to get, you know, cigarettes gone. And I had tried and tried and tried. I, I wrote promises to my wife and handed them to her, like, you know, Here's, here's my promise. I'm going to quit smoking. Yeah. I'm thankful she didn't save those. And then through Christ, I, I was able to give up cigarettes. I had another battle still ahead of me, chewing tobacco and cigars. and you know, I, I, it just I, All those vices were part of my life because they were part of my parents' life and part of my grandparents' life. And it was just part of living. But I was reading an article a few weeks ago about somebody who hadn't smoked in over 30 years and all of a sudden one day he just felt the urge and he smoked a cigarette and he was hooked again. And I thought, you know, that's a warning. And then I read this and I'm saying, you know, you can't rest on the past. You can only rest in the present on what Christ has done and continue to come to him. Even for the things that are of the past in the sense of our sins. We can say, thank you, Lord, for the success so far in this. And by the way, somebody's going to obviously say, Bob, are you saying smoking is a sin? All I can say is, does it harm your body? Does it make sense? I'll just take it to my dad's level who was not a believer. Taking smoke in your mouth, into your lungs, and blowing it out your nose just doesn't make sense. And he quit one day and never picked them up again. We'll never know the full suffering. As a result, that's the, the reality that we need to constantly rest in Christ who does. In everything. You struggle with pornography, maybe you haven't had a, a fall in, in days, weeks, months, years. Beware. You, you, you struggle with, with uh, any sin and that you've had what appears to be victory over it for years and years and years. Don't get prideful about it. In fact, pride is one of those areas, isn't it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and, and, the, and, the, and the pride of life, or the pride of possessions is, is implied in that word too. 
And then, of course, the pride goes before the fall. Again, we've never made it through any temptation 100%. Man has, has not succeeded, but Jesus has. We have, we, we have fallen and fallen and fallen, but Jesus has stood every time. And I wrote what I've already kind of said. We caved. Never, we'll never know the full force of temptation because we've caved. But Christ does because He didn't. Result says very clearly He sympathizes with us. And I know that word sympathy, by the way, uh, from the English side of it. And that's, it's not complete in the sense of what the Greek word means here. And you need to understand. Does anybody... Well, I'm not going to... It's a rhetorical question. Does anybody understand the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is where you, you see someone suffering and you, you identify with it, but not because you've been through it. And you sympathize. Empathy is because you have been through it, you can really identify. Jesus has... This word carries to the fullness of the word. It, it includes empathy. There isn't anything that Jesus can't identify with us. Anything. He feels for us and actually knows what we've been through. And because of what Christ has done, we can approach the throne of grace. And this was the other thing that hit me this week. And it was multiple places, so I can't give credit to any one person, but it's not even my own credit. I hadn't put it this way in my thinking before. Because I often think, how awesome it is that we get to approach the throne of grace. But somebody pointed out, multiple people pointed out, uh, the result of what Jesus has done is not only do we approach the throne of grace, but we will never approach the throne, of the white throne of judgment. That's a throne we'll never have to face. Isn't that amazing? There is a judgment day for Christians, and that's all in there. But it's not the white throne of judgment for sins and, and, and in the sense of, 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 of our salvation. We get to, because of what Christ has done, we get to approach the throne of grace. And we did to do it with a sense of, of confidence. No condemnation. Not the sense of fear that the high priest even of the Old Testament did once a year. Because Jesus at the cross said, it is finished, the curtain was rent in two, and the, and the Holy of Holies was open. We come through Christ and His death, His incarnation and death, we come through Him to the Holy of Holies. And we can do it without fear, in the sense of that fear of, of, of being cast away. When we have confessed Him with our uh, mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is the Lord, when that has been a part of who we are, the Holy Spirit is in us, we get to come to the throne of grace with a confidence that God will receive us every single time. What if I've sinned again? What if I, what if I actually fell back into old sin pattern? Come to the throne of grace. Jesus will always receive you. This word condemnation is, is, is another one of those words that has broad meaning for some things and it actually includes the idea of speaking openly. In other words, boldly presenting yourself, but not boldly with any kind of arrogance. That's we get that some I've heard some people say, we can boldly approach the throne of God, you know, and, and almost do it with a swagger. No. If anything you should think about on your knees or prostrate on the floor, you know, some you, you need to realize we have to have a reverent fear of God. God is not the good guy or the old man upstairs or any of those kinds of phrases that are used sometimes to describe him. He is the God of all creation, the God of judgment, the God of this world, the God of creation. He is, in a sense, He is everything that requires our awe in a sense of coming before Him. So we don't come with any kind of an arrogance, but we come with a sense of freedom knowing we are going to be accepted and that we can say whatever we need to say, God, I have blown it again. 
His grace, if we're sincere, His grace is received. If we're resting in His ability to forgive through the cross and through His sacrifice, we receive forgiveness. We come confessing our sins to the cross then. We also come declaring our needs and asking for help. I have to confess, this is where I tend to, to get a little, I don't know what the right word is, but demanding. I'm not a very patient person. Most of you, I think, would probably think me as somewhat non-confrontive, and that is basically who I am today. You didn't know my BC days. I think God, it was some things that uh, when you when you come into, especially from an adult life, you come into a relationship with the Lord. There's certain things that are just amazingly different when you confess Christ, and, and one of the things was a, a, a change that needed to really happen. And that was the idea of it's all right to do whatever it takes to get what you want. Manipulate, push, whatever. And I will tell you, my lack of respect for authority and a lot of other things cost me a lot. And even at that point, it didn't break me. Today, I still have a sense of boldness, if you will. Because of my impatience, I come to the God's throne saying, why hasn't this happened yet? Or, you know, when is this going to be done? Or, you know, I don't have to face it. I'm, I'm part of the, 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 the McDonald's generation. I want it now. That's just it. You know, I, 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 my typical phrase is the microwave generation. Do, I, I, here's my phrase, my, 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 my thing on that. Do you go to the microwave to have a gourmet meal? If you went to a really upscale restaurant and you, they said just a minute and they came back within two to three minutes with your food, you would know the food was pre-cooked. That alone might be a cue that you're in a place you don't want to eat. McDonald's. You don't go to McDonald's to get a good, great hamburger. You go to Scrubby and Lloyd's in San Luis Obispo. I don't even know if they're still there. But that was the best greasy spoon hamburger to this day I have ever had. I loved going there. Second best place was Ed's Takeout. Okay, so everybody knows, you know, you don't, but it was made to order now kind of thing. You know, it, 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 but microwave, you get it to eat in two minutes. It's, it's convenient. It's fast. It, you know, I've seen things advertised on TV how to cook things faster and faster and faster on all those infomercials and stuff, if you have the right roaster, the right pan, right induction thing, whatever. And, and uh, the whole idea is, is that we can get it faster and faster and faster. I am still definitely part of that generation. And you guys that are younger than me are more so than I am. Impatient. I was rebuked this week. <laughs> by the Lord and His Word for my impatience. David wrote, Psalm 70, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. <laughs> o Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be burned, uh, turned back and, and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! May all who seek you, me included, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say, Evermore God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my Redeemer. O Lord, do not delay. That's more akin to the where I am. The one thing we have to understand as we come to the throne of grace is that God does not neglect to answer. He does hear us. He does not turn us away. We can come with confidence knowing that He listens, but He will answer according to His purposes in our life, which will be best for us. Do you believe that? 
I was talking to me. (laughs) Confess our sins. Declare our needs. Asking for help, but realizing as we do so with confidence that God will do it according to the purpose that will best result in drawing us closer to Him and through us drawing other people closer to Him. But that, like I said, that impatience. You do it. I do it. David did it. But He comes in His perfect timing. His mercy and His grace. And it talks about the mercy and grace here. His mercy is His compassion and His love. He spares us from what we deserve. When we rest in His mercy, we are spared from what we deserve. What do we deserve? Death. Blunt. Let's be. Wages of sin is death. Physical and spiritual death. That's what we deserve. The fact that we all are sitting here today is is the reality check that we have been in His grace. If you're sitting here saved, that's another level of His grace. But anybody that's walking this earth that has sinned in that context of moral accountability knows the difference between right and wrong and a sin deserves the immediate penalty, death. And so there's even a sense of generic grace, not saving grace, where people are still resting in the reality that that God has not brought that judgment down on us yet. His mercy, sparing us from what we deserve, and His grace is giving us what we don't deserve. His mercy is not executing the judgment sentence. His grace is giving us forgiveness. And so we come to to His throne in a sense for mercy and grace. For Him to to deal with us in a sense of, of, of not according to our sins, but according to His love and His grace and His kindness. And we can do that with confidence. And we can do it, He says very clearly here, in the sense of of that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, I also want to make sure you understand that this idea of mercy and grace, so much we, so often we, 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 we think in terms of salvation, you know, and, and heaven. That's enough. <laughs> don't, don't misunderstand. But this mercy and grace is even to get through this life today with whatever complications, problems, trials, tribulations, joys that it has. Understand that His mercy and grace is for right now, here, today. I'm confidently, I, I, I say it, I sense in a sense of, of that confident statement, one day at a time, one day closer. People say, don't you get tired of repeating that? No. I don't. It, I, I, I would be surprised if I say it less than a few times a day and think about it often. And I can come with confidence to the throne of God for whatever I need today. And His mercy and His grace will meet me at my need. And the idea is, is if, if it's, you know, I have to tell you, I would really like to be done with this coughing and stuff. And I took a bunch of cough stuff so that I wouldn't be coughing all through the sermon. But my chest still hurts a little and, 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 and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, Lord, yesterday would have been fine. Today, okay. Tomorrow, if, if, if not today, you know, don't, you don't need to. You know, it's been a couple of weeks. Well, it's been over a week. For my wife, it's been over almost a week and a half. At that point, His mercy and His grace carries me through the illness. I can rest with confidence that no matter what happens with this cold, God is taking me by the hand working things out in such a way that everything that will happen in my life, and I believe that with absolute confidence, Romans 8 says, will benefit me in my walk with the Lord. 
And I, like many of you, have been through a number of trials and tribulations. Some of them my own doing. Some of them I still don't understand. But with confidence, his mercy and his grace, as I have seen it act already over and over and over again, my life, other lives, in the scriptures, I realize it's not just for salvation. And don't misunderstand, I'm not playing down salvation when I say just for. And it's not just the idea of heaven and eternity. It is for today. For everything that is in, uh, uh, that I'm in today and that is ahead of me. I can have confidence, faith, knowing I am a child of God and He is working me in me to create what He wants me to be in this world and looking ahead to the world that is the, the eternity, knowing that I never face the throne of judgment because of the throne of grace. I have His mercy. I am not going to receive what I deserve. I deserve justice, wrath, and judgment. Instead, I receive His grace. I will receive what I don't deserve. Forgiveness. Again, when I have confessed with my mouth, when I have received in my heart the truth of Jesus Christ and His salvation, His perfect sacrifice, I take from Him His sinless life, His poured out blood, His perfect sacrifice. Covers my failures, my sins, and it does so completely that there's nothing left over to take care of. When He said, it is finished at the cross, gave up his life. That's where I find my rest, my strength. And it's complete. There's nothing dependent on me to come to the throne of Christ. Because my confession, as I confess, he opens the doors. He reveals himself. I receive him. His perfect sacrifice. It's represented in communion every time we share in communion. I think communion is an intricate part of our worship. The fact that we do it here every week is because of that. And not just me, but I, I think most of you are in agreement. I've had several of you tell me over the, the years you've gone someplace else and visited a church and they didn't have communion and you felt like part of worship was missing. And uh, I agree. The idea of sharing the, the, the cup that represents the spilled blood of Christ, the poured out blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. And the bread, the reality that he emptied himself and came in the flesh. And suffered for us. And then died for us. So that we can come to the throne of grace instead of the throne of judgment. I ask the ushers to come, pass the communion out until we've all been served and uh, we'll share together.
sacrifice to the cross and yielded it 
lamb taking away the sins of the world, as, as John the Baptist said, without blemish, without fault. He died on the cross, literally in the flesh. And so he could take the bread the night before he was crucified and, 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 and after giving thanks and, and, and breaking it, sharing it with the disciples, he said, this is my body, broken for you. In other words, this is my flesh. This is my body. And it's, it's, it's given for you. And for us and all who confess and believe, let us share it together as he instructed, remembering him. Then he took the cup and basically said, this will be the sign of my sacrifice until I return. This cup will represent the blood that purchases the covenant. My death on the cross is what he was telling them. And he asked us to take it, and as often as we do, remembering him until he comes again. And then we're going to share this with him in a unique way that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us share it together. Father, again we come. Lord, resting in your grace and your grace alone. Nothing in and of ourselves to bring to the to the table. You did it all. You said it was finished, and when it was done, it was done. Nothing left to be accomplished. And as we confess you, as we believe, as we receive you, we realize that. We rest in you and you alone. And we thank you for that grace of salvation. But Lord, I know that even that any of us can have those seasons and times in our lives where coming to the throne of grace to have our needs met, confession of sins, all the things that are in the midst of our needs, sometimes we don't come with the confidence. Because the flesh gets in the way. We ask, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit in us, would give us the confidence to approach your throne and know that we rest in your grace, in your salvation. There is nothing that will separate us from your love. There is no condemnation in those who receive and rest in your grace. Thank you. We worship you. We praise you. We ask that you would go with us and cause us, the Lord, to be drawn to you in a way like never before, in a sense of, of stronger, more confident that God of all creation is our Savior. Thank you. We worship you in Jesus' name.